Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Enter Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Volume 7 Jeeves and the Chump Cyril You know, the longer I live, the more clearly I see that half the trouble in this bally world is caused by the light-hearted and thoughtless way in which chappies dash off letters of introduction and hand them to other chappies to deliver to the chappies in the third part. It's one of those things that make you wish you were living in the Stone Age. What I mean to say is, if a fellow in those days wanted to give anyone a letter of introduction, he had to spend a month or so carving it in a large-sized boulder, and the chances were that the other chappie got so sick of lugging the thing around in the hot sun that he'd drop it after the first mile. But nowadays it's so easy to write letters of introduction that everybody does it without a second thought, with the result that some perfectly harmless cove like myself gets in the soup. Mark you, all of the above is what you might call the result of my riper experience. I don't mind admitting that in the first flush of the thing, so to speak, when Jeeves told me, this would be about three weeks after I'd landed in America, that a blighter called Cyril Bassington Bassington had arrived, and I found that he had brought a letter of introduction to me from my Aunt Agatha. Where was I? Oh, yes. I don't mind admitting I was saying that just at first I was rather bucked. You see, after the painful events which had resulted in my leaving England, I hadn't expected to get any sort of letter from Aunt Agatha which would pass the censor, so to speak. And it was a pleasant surprise to open this one and find it almost civil. Chilly, yes, but on the whole quite tolerably polite. I looked on the thing as a hopeful sign, sort of an olive branch, you know. Or do I mean an orange blossom? Whatever, the thing I'm getting at is the fact that Aunt Agatha was writing to me without calling me names seemed more or less like a step in the right direction of peace. And I was all for peace, and that right speedily. I'm not saying a word against New York, mind you. I like the place, and was having quite a bright time there. But the fact remains that a fellow who's been used to London all his life does get a trifle homesick on a foreign strand. And I want to pop back to the cosy old flat in Berkeley Street which could only be done when Aunt Agatha had simmered down and got over the Glossop episode. I know that London is a biggish city, but believe me, it isn't half big enough for any fellow to live in with Aunt Agatha when she's after him with an old hatchet. And so I'm bound to say I looked on this chump, Bassington Bassington, when he arrived, more or less as a dove of peace, and it was all for him. He would seem from contemporary accounts to have blown in one morning at 7.45, that being the ghastly sort of hour they shoot you off a liner in New York. He was given the respectful raspberry by Jeeves, and told again about three hours later when there would be a sporting chance of my having sprung from bed with a glad cry to welcome another day, and all that sort of thing, which was rather decent of Jeeves, by the way, for it so happened there was a slight estrangement, a touch of coldness, a bit of a row, in other words, between us at the moment, because of some rather priceless purple socks which I was wearing against his wishes. Now, a lesser man might easily have snatched at the chance of getting back at me a bit by loosing Cyril into my bedchamber at a moment when I couldn't have stood a two-minute conversation with my dearest pal. For until I've had my early cup of tea and have brooded on life for a bit, absolutely undisturbed, I'm not much of a lad for the merry chit-chat. So Jeeves very sportingly shot Cyril out into the crisp morning air and didn't let me know of his existence till he brought his card in with the bohea. 
And what might all this be, Jeeves, I said, giving the thing the glassy gaze. The gentleman has arrived from England, I understand, sir. He called to see you earlier in the day. Good Lord, Jeeves, you don't mean to say that the day starts earlier than this. He desired me to say he would return later, sir. I never heard of him. Have you ever heard of him, Jeeves? I am familiar with the name Bassington Bassington, sir. There are three branches of the Bassington Bassington family. The Shropshire Bassington Bassingtons, the Hampshire Bassington Bassingtons, and the Kent Bassington Bassingtons. England seems pretty well stocked up with Bassington Bassingtons. Tolerably well, sir, yes. So no chance of a sudden shortage, I mean, what? Presumably not, sir. And what sort of specimen is this one? I could not say, sir, on such short acquaintance. Will you give me a sporting two to one, Jeeves, judging from what you've seen of him, that this chappie is not a blighter or excrescence? No, sir, I should not care to venture such liberal arts. I knew it. Well, the only thing that remains to be discovered is what kind of blighter he is, then. Time will tell, sir. The gentleman brought a letter for you. Oh, he did, did he? I said, and grasped the communication. And then I recognized the handwriting. I say, Jeeves, this is from my Aunt Agatha. Indeed, sir. Don't dismiss it in that light way. Don't you see what this means? She says she wants me to look after this excrescence while he's in New York. By Jove, Jeeves, if I only fought on him a little bit, so that he sends back a favorable report to headquarters... I may yet be able to get back to England in time for Goodwood. Now is certainly the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party, Jeeves. We must rally round and cosset this cove in no uncertain manner. Yes, sir. He isn't going to stay in New York long, I said, taking another look at the letter. He's headed for Washington, going to give the nibs there the once over, apparently before taking a whirl at the diplomatic service. I should say that we can win this lad's esteem and affection with a lunch and a couple of dinners, what? I fancy that should be adequate, sir. This is the jolliest thing that's happened since we left England. It looks to me as if the sun were breaking through the clouds, Jeeves. Very possibly, sir. He started to put out my things, and there was an awkward sort of silence. Not those socks, Jeeves. I said gulping a bit, but having a dash at the careless off-hand tone. Put out the purple ones. I beg your pardon, sir. Those jolly purple ones. Very good, sir. He lugged them out of the drawer as if he were a vegetarian fishing a caterpillar out of his salad. You could see he was feeling deeply. Deuce painful, all that sort of thing. But a chap has got to assert himself every now and then. Absolutely. I was looking for Cyril to show up again any time after breakfast, but he never appeared. So towards one o'clock I trickled out to the Lambs Club, where I had an appointment to feed the Worcester face with a cove of the name of Caffin I'd got pally with since my arrival. George Caffin, a fellow who wrote plays and whatnot. I made a lot of friends during my stay in New York, the city being crammed with bonhomie lads who one and all extended a welcoming hand to the stranger in their midst. Caffin was a bit late, but bobbed up finally, saying that he had been kept at a rehearsal of his new musical comedy, Ask Dad, and we started in. We just reached the coffee when the waiter came up and said that Jeeves wanted to see me. Jeeves was in the waiting room. He gave the socks one pained look as I came in, then averted his eyes. 
Mr. Bassington Bassington has just telephoned, sir. Oh? Yes, sir. Where is he? In prison, sir. I reeled against the wallpaper. A nice thing to happen to Aunt Agatha's nominee on his first morning under my wing. In prison? Yes, sir. He said on the telephone that he had been arrested and would be glad if you could step round and bail him out. Arrested? What for? He did not favour me with his confidence in that respect, sir. This is a bit thick, Jeeves. Precisely, sir. I collected old George, who very decently volunteered to stagger along with me, and we hopped into a taxi. We sat around at the police station for a bit, on a wooden bench, in a sort of ante-room, and presently a policeman appeared, leaving in Cyril. Hello, 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 I said. What? My experience is that a fellow never really looks his best just after he's come out of a cell. When I was up at Oxford, I used to have a regular job bailing out a pal of mine who never failed to get pinched every boat race night, and he always looked like something that had been dug up by the roots. Cyril was in pretty much the same sort of shape. He had a black eye and a torn collar, and altogether was nothing to write home about, especially if one was writing to Aunt Agatha. He was a thin, tall chappy with a lot of light hair, and pale blue goggly eyes, which made him look like one of the rarer kinds of fish. I got your message, I said. Oh, are you Bertie Worcester? Absolutely, and this is my pal, George Caffin. Writes plays and whatnot, don't you know? We all shook hands, and the policeman, having retrieved a piece of chewing gum from the underside of his chair, where it parked it against a rainy day, went off into a corner and began to contemplate the infinite. This is a rotten country, said Cyril. Oh, I don't know. You know, don't you know, I said. We do our best, said George. Oh, oh, George is an American, I explained. Writes plays, don't you know, and whatnot. Of course, I didn't invent the country, said George. That was Columbus, but I shall be delighted to consider any improvements you may suggest and lay them before the proper authorities. Well, why don't the policemen in New York dress properly? George took a look at the chewing officer across the room. I don't see anything missing, he said. I mean to say, why don't they wear helmets like they do in London? Why do they look like postmen? It isn't fair on a fellow. Makes it dashed confusing. I was simply standing on the pavement, looking at things, when a fellow who looked like a postman prodded me in the ribs with a club. I didn't see why I should have postmen prodding me. Why the dickens should a fellow come three thousand miles to be prodded by postmen, after all? The point is well taken, said George. What did you do? I gave him a shove, you know. I got a frightfully hasty temper, you know. All the Bassington Bassingtons have got a frightfully hasty temper, don't you know? And then he biffed me in the eye and lugged me off to this beastly place. I'll fix it, old son, I said. And I hauled out the bankroll and went off to open negotiations, leaving Cyril to talk to George. I don't mind admitting I was a bit perturbed. There were furrows in the old brow, and I had a kind of foreboding feeling. As long as this chump stayed in New York, I was responsible for him, and he didn't give me the impression of being the species of cove a reasonable chappy would care to be responsible for for more than three minutes. I mused with a considerable amount of intensity over Cyril that night when I got home and Jeeves had brought me the final whiskey. I couldn't help feeling this visit of his to America was going to be one of those times that try men's souls and whatnot. 
I hauled out Aunt Agatha's letter of introduction and reread it. There was no getting away from the fact that she undoubtedly appeared to be somewhat wrapped up in this blighter and to consider it my mission in life to shield him from harm while on the premises. I was deuced thankful that he had taken such a liking to George, old George being a steady sort of cove. After I had got him out of his dungeon cell, he and old George had gone off together, as chummy as brothers, to watch the afternoon rehearsal of Ask Dad. There was some talk, I gathered, of their dining together. I felt pretty easy in my mind while George had his eye on him. I got about as far as this in my meditations when Jeeves came in with a telegram. Well, it actually wasn't a telegram. It was a cable from Aunt Agatha. This is what it said. Has Cyril Bassington Bassington called yet? On no account introduce him into theatrical circles. This is vitally important. Letter follows. I read it a couple of times. Well, this is rummy, Jeeves. Yes, sir. Very rummy and dash disturbing. Will there be anything further tonight, sir? Of course, if he was going to be as bawly unsympathetic as that, there was nothing to be done. My idea had been to show him the cable and ask his advice, but if he was letting those purple socks rankle to that extent, the good old noblesse oblige of the Worcesters couldn't lower itself to the extent of pleading with the man. Absolutely not. So I gave it a miss. Nothing more, thanks. Good night, sir. Good night. He floated away, and I sat down to think the thing over. I had been directing the best efforts of the old bean to the problem for a matter of about half an hour, when there was a ring at the bell. I went to the door, and there was Cyril, looking pretty festive. I'll come in for a bit, if I may. He said, Got something rather priceless to tell you. He coveted past me into the sitting room. When I got there, after shutting the front door, I found him reading on Agatha's cable and giggling in a rummy sort of way. Oughtn't to have looked at this, I suppose. Caught sight of my name and read it without thinking. I say, Worcester, old friend, of my youth, this is rather funny. Do you mind if I have a drink? Thanks awfully and all that sort of rot. Yes, it's rather funny, considering what I came to tell you. Jolly old Cavan has given me a small part in that musical comedy of his. Ask Dad. Only a bit, you know, but quite tolerably ripe. I'm feeling frightfully braced, don't you know? He drank his drink and went on. He didn't seem to notice that I wasn't jumping about the room, yapping for joy. You know, I've always wanted to go on the stage, you know, but my jolly old governor wouldn't stick it at any price. Put the old Waukese down with a bang and turn bright purple whenever the subject was mentioned. That's the real reason why I came over here, if you want to know. I knew there wasn't a chance of my being able to work this stage wheeze in London without someone getting onto it and tipping off the governor. So I rather brainily sprang the scheme of popping over to Washington and broaden my mind. There's nobody to interfere on this side, you see, so I can go right ahead. I tried to reason with the poor chump. But your governor will have to know some time. Oh, that'll be all right. I shall be the jolly old star by then, and he won't have a leg to stand on. Seems to me he'll have one leg to stand on while he kicks me with the other. Why, where do you come in? What have you got to do with it? I introduced you to George Caffin. So you did, old top, so you did. I'd quite forgotten. I ought to have thanked you before. Well, so long. 
There's an early rehearsal of Ask Dan tomorrow morning, and I must be toddling. Rummy, the thing should be called Ask Dan, when that's just what I'm not going to do. See what I mean? Well, what? Huh? Pip, pip. Toodaloo, I said sadly, and the blighters scattered off. I dived for the phone and called up George Caffin. I say, George, what is all this about Cyril Bassington Bassington? What about him? He tells me you've given him a part in your show. Well, yeah, just a few lines. But I've just got 57 cables from home telling me on no account to let him on the stage. I'm sorry, but Cyril is just the type I need for the part. He's simply got to be himself. It's pretty tough on me, George, old man. My Aunt Agatha sent this bladder over with a letter of introduction, and she will hold me responsible. You mean she's going to cut you out of her will? It's not a question of money. But of course, you've never met my Aunt Agatha, so it's rather hard to explain. She's a sort of human vampire bat. She'll make things most fearfully unpleasant for me when I get back to England. She's the kind of woman who comes and rags you before breakfast, don't you know? Well, then don't go back to England, Bertie. Stick here and become president. But George, old top. Good night, Bertie. But I say George, old man. You didn't get my last remark. It was good night. You idle rich may not need any sleep, but I've got to be bright and fresh in the morning. God bless you. I felt as if I hadn't a friend in the world. I was so jolly worked up, I went and banged on Jeeves's door. It wasn't a thing I'd have cared to do as a rule, but it seemed to me that now was the time for all men to come to the aid of the party, so to speak, and that it was up to Jeeves to rally round the young master, even if it broke up his beauty sleep. Jeeves emerged in a brown dressing gown. Sir. Do sorry to wake you up, Jeeves, and what not, but all sorts of dashed disturbing things have been happening. I was not asleep, sir. It is my practice on retiring to read a few pages of some instructive book. That's good. What I mean to say is, if you've finished exercising the old bean, it's probably in mid-season form for tackling problems. Jeeves, Mr. Bassington Bassington is going on the stage. Indeed, sir. Ha! The thing doesn't hit you. You don't get it properly. Here's the point. All his family are most fearfully dead against his going on the stage. There's going to be no end of trouble if he isn't headed off. And what's worse, my Aunt Agatha will blame me, you see. I see, sir. Can't you think of some way of stopping him? Not, I confess, at this moment, sir. We'll have a stab at it. I will give the matter my best consideration, sir. Will there be anything further tonight? I hope not. I've had all I can stand already. Very good, sir. And he popped off. The part which old George had written for the chump Cyril took up about two pages of typescript, but it might have been Hamlet the way that poor misguided pinhead worked himself to the bone over it. I suppose if I heard him practice his lines once, I heard it a thousand times in the first couple of days. He seemed to think that my only feeling about the whole affair was one of enthusiastic admiration and that he could rely on my support and sympathy. What with trying to imagine how Aunt Agatha was going to take this thing, and being woken up out of the dreamless in the small hours every other night to give my opinion of some new bit of business which Cyril had invented, I became more or less the good old shadow, and all the time Jeeves remained still pretty cold and distant about the purple socks. 
It's this sort of thing that ages a chappy, don't you know, and makes his youthful joie de vivre go groggy at the knees. In the middle of it, Aunt Agatha's letter arrived. It took her about six pages to do justice to Cyril's father's feelings in regard to his going on the stage, and about six more to give me a kind of sketch of what she would say, think, and do if I didn't keep him clear of injurious influences while he was in America. The letter came by the afternoon post, and left me with a pretty firm conviction that it wasn't a thing I would keep to myself. I didn't even wait to ring the bell. I whizzed through the kitchen, bleeding for Jeeves, and buttered into the middle of a regular tea party of sorts. Seated at the table were a depressed-looking cove, who might have been a valet or something, and a boy in a Norfolk suit. The valet chappy was drinking a whiskey and soda, and the boy was being tolerably rough with some jam and cakes. "'I say, Jeeves,' I said, "'sorry to interrupt the feast of reason and the flow of soul and so forth, but—' At this juncture the small boy's eye hit me like a bullet and stopped me in my tracks. It was one of those cold, clammy, accusing sort of eyes— the kind that makes you reach up to see if your tie is straight, and he looked at me as if I was some sort of unnecessary product which Cuthbert the cat had brought in after a ramble among the local ash cans. He was a stoutish infant with a lot of freckles and a good deal of jam on his face. Hello, 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 I said, what? There didn't seem to be much else to say. The stripling stared at me in a nasty sort of way through the jam. He may have loved me at first sight, but the impression he gave me was that he didn't think a lot of me, and wasn't betting much that I would improve a great deal on acquaintance. I had a kind of feeling that I was about to be as popular with him as a cold Welsh rabbit. "'What's your name?' he asked. "'My name? Uh, Worcester, don't you know, and what not?' "'My pop's richer than you are!' That seemed to be all about me. The child, having said that, started in on the jam again. I turned to Jeeves. I say, Jeeves, can you spare a moment? I want to show you something. Very good, sir. We toddled into the sitting room. Who's your friend, Jeeves? Sidney the Sunbeam. The young gentleman, sir? It's a loose way of describing him, but I know what you mean. I trust I was not taking a liberty in entertaining him, sir. Not a bit. If that's your idea of a large afternoon, then go ahead. I happened to meet the young gentleman taking a walk with his father's valet, sir whom I used to know somewhat intimately in London, and I ventured to invite them both to join me here. Well, never mind about that, Jeeves. Read this letter. He gave it the up and down. Very disturbing, sir. Was all he could find to say. Well, what are we going to do about it? Time may provide a solution, sir. On the other hand, it may not. What? Extremely true, sir. We got as far as this when there was a ring at the door. Jeeves shimmered off and Cyril blew in, full of good cheer and blitheringness. I say, Worcester old thing, I want your advice. You know this jolly old part of mine. How ought I to dress? I mean, the first act seed is laid out in a hotel of sorts at about three in the afternoon. What ought I to wear, do you think? I wasn't feeling fit for a discussion of gents' suitings. You're better off consulting Jeeves, I said. A hot and by no means unwrap idea. Where is he? Going back to the kitchen, I suppose. I'll smite the good old bell, shall I? Yes? No? Righto. Jeeves poured silently in. Oh, I say, Jeeves. Began Cyril. I just wanted to have a syllable or two with you. It's this way. 
Hello, who's this? I then perceived that the stout stripling had trickled into the room after Jeeves. He was standing at the door looking at Cyril, as if his worst fears had been realised. There was a bit of silence, and the child remained there, drinking Cyril in for half a minute. Then he gave his verdict. Fish face. Eh, what? Said Cyril. The child, who had evidently been taught at his mother's knee to speak the truth, made his meaning a trifle clearer. You've got a face like a fish. He spoke as if Cyril was more to be pitied than censured, which I am bound to say I thought rather decent and broad-minded of him. I don't mind admitting that whenever I looked at Cyril's face, I always had a feeling that he couldn't have gotten that way without its being mostly his own fault. I found myself warming to the child. Absolutely, don't you know. I like this conversation. It seemed to take Cyril a moment or two, really, to grasp the thing. And then you could hear the blood of the Bassington Bassingtons begin to sizzle. Well, I'm dashed. I'm dashed if I'm not. He said. I wouldn't like to have that face like you. Proceeded the child with a good deal of earnestness. Not if you gave me a million dollars. He thought for a moment and corrected himself. Two million dollars. He added. Just what occurred then, I couldn't exactly say, but the next few minutes were a bit exciting. I take it that Cyril must have been a dive for the infant. Anyway, the air seemed pretty well congested with arms and legs and things. Something bumped into the Worcester waistcoat just around the third button, and I collapsed onto the settee and rather lost interest in the thing for the moment. When I had unscrambled myself, I found that Jeeves and the child had retired, and Cyril was standing in the middle of the room, snorting a bit. Who's that frightful little brute, Worcester? I don't know. I've never seen him before today. I gave him a couple of tolerably juicy buffets before he legged it. I say, Worcester, that kid said a dashing odd thing. He yelled out something about Jeeves promising him a dollar if he called me a... what he said. That sounded pretty unlikely to me. Why would Jeeves do that? Struck me as rummy, too. What would be the sense of it? I can't see it. I mean to say, it's nothing to Jeeves what sort of face you have. No, said Cyril. He spoke a little coldly, I fancied. I don't know why. Well, I'll be popping off then, toodaloo. Pip, pip. Must have been about a week after this rummy little episode that George Caffin called me up and asked me if I would care to come by and see a run-through of the show. Asked Dad, it seemed, was to open out of town in Schenectady on the following Monday, and this was to be a sort of preliminary dress rehearsal. A preliminary dress rehearsal, old George explained, was the same as the regular dress rehearsal, inasmuch it was apt to look like nothing on earth and last into the small hours, but more exciting because they wouldn't be timing the piece. Consequently, all the blighters, who on this occasion let their angry passions rise, would have plenty of scope for interruptions, with the result that a pleasant time would be had by all. The thing was built to start at 8 o'clock, so I rolled up at 10.15, so as not to have too long to wait before they actually began. The dress parade was still going on. George was on the stage, talking to a cove in shirt sleeves, and an absolutely round chappy with big spectacles and a practically hairless dome. I had seen George with the ladder merchant once or twice at the club, and I knew that he was Blumenfield, the manager. I waved to George and slid to the seat at the back of the house, so as to be out of the way when the fighting started. Presently, George hopped down off the stage and came and joined me, and fairly soon after that the curtain went down, 
The chappie at the piano whacked out a well-met bar or two, and the curtain went up. Now, I can't quite recall what the plot of As Dad was about, but I do know it seemed able to jog along all right without much help from the Cyril. I was rather puzzled at first. What I mean is, through the brooding on Cyril and hearing him in his part and listening to his views on what ought to and what ought not to have been done, I suppose I had got sort of an impression rooted in the old bean that he was pretty well the backbone of the show, and that the rest of the company didn't do much except go on and fill in when he happened to be off stage. I sat there for nearly half an hour waiting for him to make his entrance, until I suddenly discovered he had been on the stage from the start. He was, in fact, the rummy-looking plug-ugly who was now leaning against a potted palm a couple of feet from the O.P. side, trying to appear intelligent while the heroine was saying a song about love being like something which for the moment has slipped by memory. After the second refrain, he began to dance in the company with a dozen other equally weird birds. A painful spectacle for one who could see a vision of Aunt Agatha reaching for the hatchet and old Bassington Bassington Sr. putting on his strongest pair of hobnail boots. Absolutely. The dance had just finished and Cyril and his pals had shuffled off into the wings when a voice spoke from the darkness on my right. Pop! Old Blumenfield clapped his hands and the hero, who had just been able to get off the next line of his diaphragm, cheesed it. I peered into the shadows. Who should it be but Jesus' little playmate with the freckles? He was now strolling down the aisle with his hands in his pockets as if the place belonged to him. An air of respectful attention seemed to pervade the building. Pop, said the stripling, that number's no good. Old Blumenfield beamed over his shoulder. Don't you like it, darling? It gives me a pain. You're dead right. You want something zippy there, something with a bit of jazz to it. Quite right, my boy, I'll make a note of it all right. Go on. I turned to George, who was muttering to himself in a rather overwrought way. I say, George, old man, who the dickens is that kid? Old George groaned a bit hollowly, as if things were a trifle thick. I didn't know he'd crawled in. It's Bluenfield's son. Now we're going to have one Hades of a time. Does he always run things like this? Always. Why does old Bloomingfield listen to him? Nobody seems to know. Maybe pure fatherly love, or he may regard him as a mascot. My own idea is he thinks the kid has exactly the same amount of intelligence as the average member of the audience, and that what makes a hit with him will please the general public, while conversely, what he doesn't like will be too rotten for anybody. The kid is a pest, a wart, a seriously, a pot of poison, and he should be strangled. The rehearsal went on. The hero got off his line. There was a slight outburst of frightfulness between the stage manager and a voice named Bill that came from somewhere near the roof, and the subject under discussion being where the devil Bill's ambers were at that particular junction. Then things went on until the moment arrived for Cyril's big scene. I was still a trifle hazy about the plot, but I had got on to the fact that Cyril was some sort of English peer, one who had come over to America, doubtless for the best reasons. So far, he had only two lines to say. One was, Oh, I say, and the other one was, Yes, by Jove. But I seem to recollect from hearing him read his part that pretty soon he was due rather to spread himself. I sat back in my chair and waited for him to bob up. He bobbed up about five minutes later. Things had got a bit stormy by that time. The voice and the stage director had had another of their love feasts, this time something to do with Bill's blues. 
They weren't on the job or something. And almost as soon as that was over, there was a bit of unpleasantness because a flower pot fell off a window ledge and nearly brained the hero. The atmosphere was consequently more or less hotted up then when Cyril, who had been hanging about the back of the stage, breezed down to the centre, towed the mark for his most substantial chunk of entertainment. The heroine, who had been saying something, I forget what, and all the chorus, with Cyril at their head, had begun to surge round her in the restless sort of way that those chappies always do when there's a number coming along. Cyril's first line was, Oh, I say, you know, you mustn't say that, really. And it seemed to me he passed it over the larynx with a goodish deal of vim and je ne sais quoi. But by Jove, before the heroine had time for a comeback, our little friend with the freckles had risen to lodge a protest. Pop! Yes, darling. That one's no good. Which one, darling? The one with a face like a fish. But they all have faces like fish, darling. The child seemed to see the justice of this objection. He became more definite. The ugly one. Which ugly one? That ugly one? Said old Blumenfield, pointed to Cyril. Yes, he's rotten. I thought so myself. He's a pill. You're dead right, my boy. I've noticed that for some time. Cyril had been gaping a bit while these few remarks were in progress. He now shot down to the footlights. Even from where I was sitting, I could see that these harsh words had hit the old Bassington Bassington family pride a frightful wallop. He started to get pink in the ears, and then in the nose, and then in the cheeks, till in about a quarter of a minute he looked pretty much like an explosion in a tomato cannery on a sunset evening. What the deuce do you mean? What the deuce do you mean? shouted old Blumenfield. I've a dash good mind to come down and spank that little brute. What? A dash good mind? Old Blumenfield swelled like a pumped up tyre. He got rounder than ever. See here, mister, I don't know what your darn name is, but my name is Bassington Bassington, and the jolly old Bassington Bassingtons, I mean, the Bassington Bassingtons, aren't accustomed to... Old Blumenfield told him in a few brief words pretty much what he thought of the Bassington Bassingtons and what they weren't accustomed to. The whole strength of the company rallied round to enjoy his remarks. You can see them jutting out from the wings and protruding from behind trees. You got to work good for my pop, said the stout child, waggling his head reprovingly at Cyril. I don't want any bally cheek from you, said Cyril, gurgling a bit. What's that? barked old Blumenfield. You understand this boy is my son. Yes, I do, and you both have my sympathy, said Cyril. You're fired, bellowed old Blumenfield, swelling a good bit more. Get out of my theatre. About half past ten the next morning, just after I had finished lubricating the old interior with a soothing cup of oolong, Jeeves filtered into my bedroom and said that Cyril was waiting to see me in the sitting room. How does he look, Jeeves? Sir. What does Mr. Bassington Bassington look like? It is hardly my place to criticise the facial peculiarities of your friend, sir. I don't mean that. I mean, does he appear peeved or what? Not noticeably, sir. His manner is tranquil. Oh, well, that's rum. Sir. Nothing. Show him in, will you? 
I'm bound to say I had expected to see Cyril showing a few more traces of last night's battle. I was looking for a bit of the overwrought soul and the quivering ganglions, if you know what I mean. He seemed pretty ordinary and quite fairly cheerful. Hello, Worcester old thing. Cheerio. I just looked in to say goodbye. Goodbye? Yes, I'm off to Washington in an hour. He sat down on the bed. You know, Worcester old top, I've been thinking it all over. And really it doesn't seem quite fair to the jolly old governor, my going on the stage and so forth. What do you think? I see what you mean. I mean to say, he sent me over here to broaden my jolly old mind and words to that effect, don't you know? And I can't help thinking it would be a bit of a jar for the old boy if I gave him the bird and went on the stage instead. I don't know if you understand me, but what I mean to say is it's, well, sort of a question of conscience. Can you leave the show without upsetting everything? Oh, that's all right. I've explained everything to old Bloomfield. He sees my position. Of course, he's sorry to lose me. Said he didn't see how he could fill my place and all that sort of thing. But, after all, even if it does land him in a bit of a hole, I think I'm right in resigning my position, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I thought you'd agree with me. Well, I ought to be shifting. Awfully glad to have seen something of you and all that sort of rot. Pip-pip. Too low. He sallied forth, having told all those bolly lies with the clear blue pop-eyed gaze of a young child. I rang for Jeeves. You know, ever since last night I had been exercising the old bean to some extent, and a good deal of light had dawned on me. Jeeves! Yes, sir. Did you put that pie-faced infant up to bolly ragging Mr. Bassington Bassington? Sir. You know what I mean. Did you tell him to get Mr. Bassington Bassington sacked from the Ass Dad Company? I would never take such a liberty, sir. He started to put out my clothes. It is possible that young Master Blumenfield may have gathered from casual remarks of mine that I did not consider the stage altogether a suitable sphere for Mr. Bassington Bassington. I say, Jeeves, you know you're a bit of a marvel. I endeavour to give satisfaction, sir. And I'm frightfully obliged, if you know what I mean. Aunt Agatha would have had sixteen or seventeen fits if you hadn't headed him off. I fancy there might have been some little friction and unpleasantness, sir. I am laying out the blue suit with the thin red stripe, sir. I fancy the effect will be pleasing. It's a rummy thing, but I had finished breakfast and gone out and got as far as the lift before I remembered what it was that I had meant to do to reward Jeeves for his really sporting behaviour in this matter of the chump cereal. It cut me to the heart to do it, but I decided to give him his way and let those purple socks pass out of my life. After all, there are times when a cove must make sacrifices. I was just going to nip back and break the glad news to him when the lift came up, so I thought I would leave it till I got home. The chappie in charge of the lift looked at me as I hopped in, with a good deal of quiet devotion and whatnot. I wish to thank you, sir, for your kindness. He said, Excuse me, what? Mr. Jeeves done give me them purple socks as you told him to. Thank you very much, sir. I looked down. The blighter was a blaze of mauve from the ankle bone southward. I didn't know when I'd seen anything so dressy. Oh, yes, not at all right. 
Glad you like them, I said. Well, what I mean to say, what? Absolutely. The end. Jeeves and the Chump Cyril. <laughs>